Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report 45. I am traveling today, so we're in a different set, and if there are technical difficulties, I apologize, but I'm going to do my best. So, we've got a lot to cover. We'll start with uh, the Fed, then we've got uh, a lot of updates on, God, good lord, North of uh, Southern, we've got uh, uh, Trump, Kushner, we've got Elon Musk, we were going to talk about does the recession even matter, uh, Wall Street analysts, uh, commentary on this. We'll be talking potentially about China and some other items as well. So a whole lot to cover. Uh, and uh, I think the best way to start is just by hopping right into it. So uh, we'll go ahead and start with our uh, talk on what's going on with uh, the Fed because Jay Powell talks again uh, over the next, uh, um, well, uh, today. Uh, so uh, we've got Jay Powell coming up again. And uh, we expect that to rhyme with yesterday, but we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll also talk uh, a little bit about uh, expectations for um, the JOLTS report coming out uh, this morning. So we'll go ahead and start there. Let's start with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is widely now believed to potentially reintroduce a 50 basis point hike. In fact, one of the best people to kind of give us a little bit of a heads up on this is my favorite mouthpiece of the Wall Street Journal, Nick T. Nick T is so wonderful because he actually gave us a video <laughs> this morning talking about exactly some of his thoughts. Let's look at his video. Let's comment on exactly that video. Remember, Nick T is the guy who works for the Wall Street Journal, and he's widely believed to be the guy who kind of gets a heads up of what the Fed is going to do before they do it. Now, right before the Fed meeting yesterday in Congress, Nick T warned that the Fed was likely to come out and talk about a higher terminal rate. And that's exactly what the Fed did. So when Nick T says something, we generally pay attention to him much like we pay attention to the Fed. After we listen to what Nick T says, we're going to jump on into what Kenny G has to say. Kenny G's got some nice things to say about the Fed as well. Actually, maybe not that nice, but we'll listen to both. So let's see if I can make this technology function and let's listen in to Nick T. Powell now sees what everybody else sees, which is that the market is priced in 50. And so this will be his opportunity to reset expectations if he wants to. Uh, but what he said yesterday was that the data is going to play an important role here. And he doesn't know what the payroll report is going to be Friday. Uh, we will get the JOLTS uh, job opening survey today. And then, of course, the inflation report next week, retail sales. So there's still data that could make up their mind here. Uh, but what I thought was important yesterday was that Powell also pointed to the revisions. So it wasn't just the January, the hot January data we got, but it was the revisions that changed the profile uh, of what the economy looked like late last year. And it seems unlikely uh, that that's going to change in the next batch of data. So the revisions seem important here. Yeah, this is could not be more true. So I want to actually talk specifically about that before we talk Kenny G, because there's something important in this. First of all, the JOLTS data, the job opening and labor turnover survey that we're going to be getting today, in my opinion, don't get too excited about it. The reason you don't want to get too excited about it is because it's from January. The JOLTS data that's coming out now in March, March 8th, is actually relevant to January, not February. So there's a lag of an additional month in the JOLTS report. So I would expect that JOLTS report to be hot today, mostly because all of the January data has been pretty dang hot. So I wouldn't put too much weight on that. Instead, one thing that I found that was very interesting about Nick T's comment here was that Jerome Powell was paying attention to the revisions. 
Now, not only is he paying attention to the revisions of the end of last year, which the revisions of end of last year were bad, right? They ended up telling us that, oh, no, inflation was worse than expected. That's not great, right? We thought inflation was a certain level of low, and that actually worsened in the fourth quarter more so than we thought that it would, right? That's not ideal. We generally don't want to hear that inflation is revising into a worse direction, right? We don't want that. Now, what's interesting, though, is if Jerome Powell is paying attention to the revisions, what it actually means is the January revisions from the February data could be especially important. Now, that's something that we've started talking about over the last few days. I've started warning when these reports start coming out, the Friday jobs report, which I'll be covering it two days and the CPI report next week. We really want to pay attention to how much was January revised. That'll be critical. So we'll pay attention to that. But uh, those, those are two important things to keep in mind. So the jolts, don't, I, I personally kind of casting that aside, pay attention to revisions like Nick T says the Fed is paying attention to. Now, let's take a listen to Kenny G here. What does Kenny G tell us about the Federal Reserve? Let's listen in. But then what's your take on what Jerome Powell said today, that the Fed was prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes and that the terminal rate is likely going to be higher than previously anticipated? A lot of people are reading that as a sign that they're going to go faster. So he created space today to move by 50 basis points mm -hmm. on the next hike. You know, they'd come into this year pretty clearly telegraphing that 25 basis points was going to be yes. the per meeting rate hike for the early part of the year, and then in some sense, taking the foot off the brake and seeing where the economy lands. And, and, and in fairness to the Fed, the interest rate tool as a means of controlling inflation, is a, is a, it's, like a, it's like having surgery with a dull knife. It is a really difficult tool to get the job done with. Now that's actually really interesting because remember yesterday when Jerome Powell was testifying before the Senate, today he'll testify before the House. Keep in mind that usually the purpose of these events is to get politicians who can then clip their hardcore questions for Powell and Powell's just deflecting them. So generally I don't pay much attention personally to the second day of Powell testifying because there's going to be the same answers as we got the day before, generally. Obviously, I'll pay attention to potential differences, but but that's my expectation. But anyway, this this idea about rates being a blunt policy instrument is something that Jerome Powell has himself said before. He says, look, the only tool we really have is changing interest rates to affect demand. But that's pretty blunt. It's pretty broad. It affects everything. It's not like a surgical tool like Kenny G here is reiterating. That creates some problems because we don't really know what the lag is of the Federal Reserve raising rates as much as they are. Not only do we not know what the lag is, uh, but uh, it makes you wonder, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. What about quantitative tightening? Don't even go there. The Fed is almost arcanely lost when it comes to the impact of quantitative tightening. So we'll see. But let's keep going uh, with uh, Kenny G's comments here. Because you hit the housing sector, you hit the manufacturing sector, you hit parts of the economy that have a very high sensitivity to interest rates. And you tend to leave the rest of the economy relatively untouched. So the Fed doesn't have as much impact with their tool as you might hope. And although they've raised rates considerably, it's not clear how long the leg effects are for the impact. Bingo. And once the impact starts to play out, how, how damaging that impact is. 
So they are, they're an uncharted territory. It's a difficult place to be. My, you know, if, I could, if I could tell one thing to the chairman, I would, I would tell him to say less. I would just be write a message. We're going to put the inflation genie back in the box. Now, I actually, I don't know if I agree with that. I actually really have enjoyed uh, the Federal Reserve's mandate of more communication. The reason for that is it creates substantially less uncertainty. Now, Kenny G basically got even more mega rich last year shorting the market. So last year was a fantastic opportunity for short sellers to, to, to short the market. That doesn't mean Kenny G is always a short seller, right? It just means he played the market very well. I mean, hats off to him. Fantastic job trading. But the problem is Jerome Powell saying less could potentially activate substantially more fears that this market is going to end up getting what I call Paul Volkerd. And getting Paul Volkert, I think, is actually the worst-case scenario fear for the markets. In fact, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see the thesis that I posted yesterday, which I actually thought was uh, very well thought out. See, I'm complimenting myself here. But anyway, you can see my thesis on Twitter, and uh, take a look at it here. So what I posted was the following. I wrote, my 2023 market thesis. The Fed's fight against inflation will take much longer than anyone expected. This puts upward pressure on Treasury yields and downward pressure on housing. However, the stock market most fears Paul Volcker, the punishment following an uncontrolled second explosion of inflation. Now, what's really important here is Jerome Powell regularly communicates to us the conditions of Paul Volcker. The conditions of Paul Volcker specifically are a wage price spiral and unanchored inflation expectations. By Jerome Powell continuously communicating those those requirements of Paul Volcker to us, us as market participants can determine how close are we to trending towards Paul Volcker. And regularly we hear inflation expectations are anchored. There is no sign of a wage price spiral. In fact, there's less of a sign of a wage price spiral, right? And, and you know what's really also phenomenal is more and more now I'm actually seeing uh, people talk about job loss rather than uh, uh, than than like all the benefits and perks of their job. Like the job loss era is really happening. Now I want to go back to that tweet, but I figure I'm going on I'm building on tangent on tangent over here, but that's okay because these are actually quite interesting. I have to give a shout out to this TikTok because it was absolutely hilarious. Now generally I don't like watching TikToks, but this one was great. Hold on, I'll play it for you grift to you okay this is not my first recession so i'm going to explain the circuit city grift to you okay if you're under 35 you don't know about this one okay there was a store a national chain back in the day called circuit city it was just like best buy it was basically the same store but instead of their color being blue their color was red all right it was I will say one thing that was substantially different about Circuit City and Best Buy was Circuit City really paid extremely well for commissions. Uh, they, they did a phenomenal job for their employees, but it's probably one of the reasons they went bankrupt because their, their employee expense was so high. I personally have fond memories of actually going to Circuit City and then going to Best Buy. <laughs> like, we would go to both, my dad and I. That was right after eating at Quarter Deck in South Florida. Anyway, let's keep listening to this because this is actually really interesting. On We're talking about the wage price spiral. So I know you might be thinking, what does Circuit City have to do with the wage price spiral? Watch. It's hilarious. This is a great, great argument. And I'll summarize part of it at the end here. But let's keep going. It was called Circuit City. It went out of business one day. 
It went out of business. And it was right around the time of the Great Recession. So all of my friends had gaps in employment. They had all these other issues. And they were stuck in entry-level positions. They couldn't move up in anything. So what did they do? They all got together and they started covering each other's resumes that each of them had worked at different positions at Circuit City. Now covering means you you put somebody else's like your other colleague or or your friend's phone number in as your HR reference or whatever, right? That that's what he means by covering because the company's bankrupt. I wasn't did they ever actually work there? No. Were they been they've been a busboy for the last 5 years? Yes. But now on paper, they were a floor manager at Circuit City. Boom. They got more money. Oh, actually, I was the director of procurement for Circuit City. Boom. Nobody could prove otherwise. There was no HR department to call. There was nothing you could verify this information against. Nothing. And the reason why I bring this up is because I... Okay, then he talks about the how inefficient HR obviously is at Twitter, and you could basically now say that you've worked at Twitter and you're just part of the 6,000 people who got laid off at Twitter, and maybe you could land yourself a better job. I think it's very interesting, but uh, as Brandon Howard here says, this is basically fraud. Uh, it is. Uh, it's funny, but in some way, it's kind of showing the pain that employees are going through right now. Like, this is the second day in a row now that I'm sharing imagine this TikToks on YouTube of people complaining about how, how difficult it is to find a new job. And now basically it's so hard to find a new job. People are resorting to fraud to, to get a new job. What, what to me, what that actually sends is this signal that yes, we do not have the conditions for the Paul Volcker wage price spiral. That's probably the most important condition of this market. And that's why I say I personally believe the stock market most fears Paul Volcker. It does not fear higher for longer. In fact, that's what I say here the next line. Although, uh, as long as we don't face a Fed rugging, I believe the stock market will basically look through higher for longer is what I argue here. Therefore, absent a rapid and intense re-intensification of inflation or reanimation of inflation, I believe a volatile Nike swoosh recovery is ahead of us in stocks with 2022 representing the down, the down part of the swoosh, right? In English, slow gradual uptrend for pricing power stocks, slow gradual downtrend for real estate. Pricing power stocks are those that favor higher income individuals, higher income businesses, those with high free cash flow, some SaaS businesses included. Like for example, look at bill.com. They have negative net income, but in insanely high free cash flow. Only once in a recession with inflation averaging, note averaging, very important, not achieving, that's very different. See flexible average inflation targeting. I expect the Federal Reserve will fulfill basically a mission accomplished U-term. This is only likely to happen once excess savings evaporate. Yes, the savings rate is lower today, but excess savings may give businesses and consumers spending power for another three to 12 months. Unfortunately, by the time a recession is confirmed, staples, industrials, commodities, and the Dixie are likely to suffer. That's my opinion, obviously, especially upon a Fed pivot as yields fall. Staples which were stocks uh, some fled to uh, due to uh, you know for for to say for safety uh, whatever Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Costco, Walmart, Johnson Johnson, Procter and Gamble, IMO are likely to suffer. Suffer. Do not make the mistake, of course, of confusing a Fed pivot with a market correction. While it's possible that something breaks and the Fed will only pivot if there uh, if something does break, in my opinion, the Fed will only pivot once they're convinced inflation is under control. 
And that is, after all, the pain point of this recession. This recession is being caused because inflation is out of control. So if inflation is under control, then the only reason for really forcing the recession goes away. That's that's the point. Now, I do still believe that uh, staples and certain companies will suffer, whereas higher income individuals and businesses will, will succeed uh, because they'll be able to spend through this recession longer. Apple, NVIDIA, Trade Desk, Tesla, Taiwan Semiconductors, to some extent, some of the housing stocks and face solar edge. And of course, layoffs are now hitting those white collar jobs, potentially more than blue collar jobs. However, personally, I, I'm, I'm I, I don't know that that's actually going to have a dramatic impact because you're really just you're shaving off almost off the top of the tech sector, if you will. It's not like the entire tech sector is getting laid off. There's still a massive amount of investment going in. Of course, then I give some general rules like stay out of margin and we'll likely look back in seven years and wish we bought more now. Uh, invest in the down cycle of the real estate cycle. Good idea. Consider using ETFs, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so I tweeted this on, 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 uh, on Twitter, of course. Uh, so I recommend you follow me on Twitter. But, but the point of this is really to say I am a big believer that the Federal Reserve uh, or, or the concern of the stock market today is a fear of Paul Volcker. And if the fear is Paul Volcker, then as long as we get more communication, we actually avoid Paul Volcker. And that's what's what Kenny G, I think, here is missing is that uh, telling Jerome Powell to communicate less is a problem because what you're doing is you're actually enhancing the likelihood for something to break in markets because you're not properly communicating the markets that we're not going into a Paul Volcker style scenario. If we are going into a Paul Volcker style scenario, I would like to know that as well because then I will flip-flop and sell faster than a flip-flopper on YouTube. Anyway, let's keep going with what Kenny G says. Bottle. We're going to do what it takes to make that happen, and we're going to raise rates consistently until we see very clear evidence that we put this behind us. Because every time they take the foot off the brake or the market perceives they're taking the foot mm -hmm. off the brake and the job's not done, they make their work even harder. And at the same time, remember, they're impacting in a very, very harsh way a very small part of the economy. And that's really tough for those businesses that live in that part of the economy. Yeah, so he's making this argument that, hey, if the Fed like basically pumps the market, they're making their job harder. With the Fed affecting the stock market, at least according to economic literature, has little to do with what actually happens. What matters more is what happens in the bond market and with financial conditions, not so much the stock market. Housing market and bond market, those two have much more of an impact. Now, there's some good comments here that are worth talking about. So Daniel uh, here, uh, a member, writes, uh, one to nine or sorry, uh, 1.9 to one jobs available. So they may be proud to temporarily work at a lower paying job. Okay, so really when we make this argument about uh, the jobs and labor turnover survey, which we will be getting today, by the way, of course, uh, but again, for January data, 1.9 to one jobs available implies that the labor market has so many available jobs. The problem is we have a substantial mismatch of jobs, right? So, and I think that's what Daniel is alluding to here is that, look, you know, you, you may be skilled in tech, but now you have to go work in a restaurant just to be able to pay your bills because you signed up for a lease that's more expensive than what you can now afford, right? That's unfortunate. But I do think that the COVID pandemic has created such weird dislocations in the job market that, that it, it is true. You just don't have enough people to fill the jobs and the roles where we actually need them. I don't know that this is necessarily trying to say this is the tightest labor market ever, even though that is what Jerome Powell says. I think we, we just literally don't have people 
either willing or able to work in certain fields, especially in hospitality or healthcare. Uh, you know, healthcare is, is 900,000 jobs short of where they should be according to trend. So it's very, very interesting in my opinion. Someone else here writes, uh, but higher for longer will affect EPS, hence lower multiples, lower market. Yeah, potentially. Uh, I mean, I think the multiples have already been priced in, but you're right. If you multiply a lower multiple by lower EPS, you, you end up getting a lower stock price. However, I am personally under the impression, and this is just my opinion, that the bottom like 38% of the Fibonacci retracement that we've seen for the NASDAQ and the SPY or whatever is actually representative of Paul Volcker fear. And it's really the top 60% that is representative of EPS fear and multiple compression fear. Uh, like at, in October of last year, markets were actually legitimately worried that inflation was never going to go back down. Remember, we've had the luxury over the last six months of actually seeing inflation trend down, right? We did not have that luxury in October. That's really important. Uh, somebody's asking if I have a comment on someone else's video, but I actually don't watch other people's videos to the extent that I'm capable of resisting. So I have no idea when somebody else makes a video about me. Most of the time, it takes somebody else asking me about it. And then I'm also generally not very interested in looking. That's a psychological thing. And I also don't know why we're talking about that on sort of the Fed topic. But you know what? Let me put it this way. It's a lesson to everyone. I actually, the very first video that I made on YouTube that brought me from 12 subscribers to 1,000 subscribers where I was talking about real estate in 2017, I talked about this concept of the toxicity of relativity, of comparing yourself to the opinions of others. And I, I warned myself, like the, the most dangerous thing is doing that in real estate and business and entrepreneurship. And it's even worse and more toxic on YouTube because YouTube is so easy to measure views, subscribers, growth rates. It's so toxic. But unfortunately, as the I believe the Bible says, uh, it, it, comparison is the the thief of joy. Don't 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 do it. <laughs> and what I like to do is I like to purposely not watch other people's commentary in my space because I don't want to start rhyming like other people. I like to provide a very unique perspective. Uh, you know, that, that's not to say I don't study all day long. Of course I do. Uh, but uh, but not not other content creators. Oh God, no. Anyway, so uh, when it comes to the Federal Reserve, uh, I actually I am very very. Uh, look, I hate to say, like, I, I don't want to sound, you know, dare I say, like a clown who is always bullish because I'm not always bullish. I think everybody who watches me knows I, when I turned bearish was the right time to turn bearish. I became bullish too early. I admit my fault. Uh, but uh, but the point is, like, no, if, if I see the conditions of going bearish, I'm going to flip very fast. But I don't see that. In fact, I think most of the Fed speak yesterday and today is really just clickbait. I mean, no shit, Jerome Powell. Sorry, I shouldn't say that because some people watch this with children. But like, really, if the data comes in hot, you're going to go 50? Duh. <laughs> right? Like, but that's what we, I mean, we've been talking about that since before the Fed meeting. Well, I've been saying on the channel, look, I, I think the Fed would shoot themselves in the foot in terms of credibility. Uh, if they go 50, the data would have to be so ridiculously intensely high for them to go 50 that I don't think they're going to do it. In fact, it's hilarious. And I'm not trying to say like, oh, you know, JP Morgan's watching my videos and like pat myself on the back as much as I would like to be able to say that. I'm not going to say that. Uh, JP Morgan released a piece on exactly that just yesterday. And what they wrote was uh, they're basically that. They're like, look, the Fed will confuse markets if they go 50. If they go 50, they will send such a confusing signal to markets that they have no control that you could actually cause more damage to markets. Here it is. It was JP Morgan's chief investment officer, Bob Michelle, 
two first names. If employment data is very strong, you've got 50 BP back on the table, but that's a pretty high hurdle once downshifted. If you go back to 50, it would be pretty confusing to the market. I hope they don't do it. They were willing willing to run a strong or sorry, a string of 25 BP increases. Exactly. It's like just add another 25 BP, but don't confuse the market with a 50. Uh, I think I think that would be silly. Uh, somebody here writes, uh, somebody who's watching on Twitch says, data says 50 now. No, data says between now and May, 50 is in the bag, but that's two rate hikes, right? We, we are sitting at about 50-50 for a 50 in March. Boy, that sounds very confusing. <laughs> uh, now you're saying futures leaning slightly 50. Okay. All right. That's a better clarification. Yes. They're teetering on the 50-50 level. Last night, they were teetering towards uh, 25 by about uh, a 52% margin. Maybe they flipped a tiny little bit with futures this morning. Either way, I don't think it terribly matters. Let's wait for the data. We'll see that. But but again, what we're hearing from the Fed here is very important. It's no Paul Volcker, but yes, it is It is a volatile path forward. And that's very, very important. A 50-50 when it was just 15. You are correct. Yes, yes, you're, you are correct. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I'm not saying Mike Trades here is wrong. You're correct. We have substantially moved towards 50. But in a weird way, I actually think that could be bullish because think about it. I think the hurdle to go 50, much like what JPM says, is very, very high. So if the market's pricing in 50, give me a rally, baby. Give me a rally on the 25. <laughs> uh, so, so yes, the market is trying to price that in. Uh, my two-week-old won't stop saying SH9T. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> two-week-old. Congratulations. That's that's awesome, man. I want to have a baby. Dude, I don't have a baby anymore. Like, I, I Look, you have a two-week-old. I know you're going through hell right now. Uh, probably lack of sleep and, and all the crap that goes along with that. Enjoy it, man. Like everybody always told me that when I had a two year old, I didn't believe him. I'm like, ah, come on, man. This is like, I got plenty of time looking at these like tiny hands and tiny feet and stuff. I have a seven year old and five year old now. And I'm like, dude, I literally don't have a baby anymore. I'm like, I want babies. I want, I want like 10 more babies. So we got to get, we got to get to work, but, but I'm, I'm just house hacking so much that, you know, I'm, I'm not fulfilling my duties here. Uh, anyway. Okay. We're going to get off that now. So, <laughs> all right, let's talk about something else. How about we talk about Trump and Fox and Dominion? I don't know. We'll keep this one short because some people get mad at me when I talk politics, but some of the politics stuff is very interesting. So per Bloomberg, Rupert Murdoch is now testifying that Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was potentially given some inside information during the 2020 election. And you won't believe what Tucker Carlson had to say about Donald Trump based on new information revealed in the Dominion lawsuit. Apparently, Rupert Murdoch is, uh, quote unquote, friends with Jared Kushner. And basically, as debates approached, uh, or debates passed, or Biden's team submitted ads in the 2020 election, Rupert Murdoch would kind of give Jared Kushner a little bit of uh, friendly advice, like, hey, don't be too much of a bully on Biden. Hey, this is what the Biden ads are going to look like going forward. Uh, now, keep in mind, Dominion is the Dominion voting machines company. Dominion is actually suing uh, the uh, Fox Corporation. Rupert Murdoch is the owner of that. Uh, he was actually seen at the Super Bowl with Elon Musk. They were sort of in the box together. But anyway, along with Rupert Murdoch's wife. 
apparently, Fox is being sued for potentially amplifying the conspiracy theory related to the rigging or stealing of the election. Dominion is claiming defamation, saying that a lot of districts have now canceled the use of Dominion voting machines and that their money, uh, their income has basically been negatively impacted because of the work of Fox News, despite overwhelming evidence that the election was not rigged and there wasn't a fraud. If, if you were watched me back in 2020, you remember I actually covered this quite well, uh, in my opinion, quite well, uh, quite a lot, I should say, more generically. But, uh, you know, what I covered, for example, the Georgia phone call with Donald Trump, which Donald Trump suggested was uh, a perfect phone call. It was not a perfect phone call, okay? It was really clear that Donald Trump was basically begging to, quote-unquote, find just an extra 12,000 votes. That's all he needed was 12,000 votes, right? Uh, and, and the pressure was pretty pretty blunt and pretty obvious. It was actually a really interesting phone call to cover. You could probably still find it on YouTube if it's not censored. Meet Kevin, uh, Donald Trump, Georgia phone call, something like that. But anyway... What's interesting is you're getting a lot of these quotes coming out, uh, like Sean Hannity calling Sidney Powell and her theories uh, about the election uh, uh, basically crazy, calling her, quote, an effing lunatic. Dan Perino, uh, sorry, Dana Perino uh, saying that uh, these, these election theories are total BS, insane, and nonsense. Sean Hannity saying you have to be careful, though. You don't want to, quote, unquote, piss off the base. That's actually something that I fail, I feel like, a lot of on, on, on Twitter is I feel like my, my the people who watch me are very much in the middle, right? Like the 80% of people in the middle. But I do worry because the people on the far left and far right get pissed off when I try when I cover, you know, things I think matter to, to the middle. Uh, and uh, sorry about that, but I think it's important. And, and that's probably the curse of being in the middle. But anyway, there's a trial set for April here. And what's actually very interesting is information that's that's coming out that just came out last night was the following. Two months after the election and just days before January 6th, this is before January 6th, uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson texted with an unknown Fox employee about how badly he wanted to stop covering Trump, saying, quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. Carlson texted on Jan 4th. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately, Carlson added. Now, that's actually really interesting. Because Tucker Carlson has regularly been seen as as basically like this this extreme uh, fringe uh, uh, by 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 especially people on the left, and I actually a couple of years ago made videos on Tucker Carlson saying, dude, like some of the stuff you're saying about like the CARES Act or the stimulus programs or whatever is just wrong. And, and I was really confused as to why why a, a narratives were really spun in one direction. I actually think, I have to say, I think he's kind of come back or, or his, his department or whatever have come a little bit more towards the middle from, from the fringes. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody agrees with that, but that's sort of a thesis that I have. Apparently, a producer uh, who works with uh, Tucker Carlson also wrote the following, quote, Dominion machines were used in Ohio and Florida. Trump won those states. Did they forget to rig those machines or was that all part of the plan? Uh, and then, of course, Tucker has also complained about this idea that people actually believe this election rigging stuff and this is bad for the country. In fact, these are his quotes that the election rigging is, quote, bad for the country to have this much doubt and suspicion. This is exactly why people believe in conspiracies. We need some sort of audit to settle it to the extent that it can be settled. 
Now, remember, defamation would re really require proof of malice by the Fox News company. Uh, and as long as there is some kind of belief that people within Fox actually believed, at least to some degree, some of the election fraud stuff they were covering, it'll be very hard for a Dominion lawsuits to actually, in my opinion, win a defamation lawsuit against a news company uh, organization. Unless, of course, it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, although this is civil, so it doesn't it doesn't go to the level of reasonable doubt. You just have to get to the preponderance of evidence. But anyway, if you could get enough evidence to say that Fox knew the election rigging story was fake, yet they were still covering as if it was true, Dominion could actually win. But that's sort of the burden they face in a civil case. So that trial is in April, and that trial should be extremely interesting, especially since Rupert Murdoch went as far as saying that if uh, the election was overturned, the 2020 election was overturned, we would see riots like we have never seen before. So it's almost kind of like the owner of Fox News knew that covering uh, the election and potentially leading to an overturning could lead to basically like almost a near collapse of democracy is sort of what he was implying. I thought that was that was pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Someone here writes, Carlson will put anything in his mouth so long as it makes him money. I mean, I do think there's there's an element of, of reputation that's very important too, right? I mean, if you say something that's wrong, I, I think most people are reasonable and you kind of want to sort of align back to the truth because if you keep getting exposed as being wrong, then then eventually people can't trust what you're saying anymore uh, and that becomes uh, an even larger issue, right? So uh, anyway, I think this is interesting because I have to say his coverage, Tucker Carlson's coverage of what's been going on of uh, sort of with, with uh, Jan 6 has been interesting and enlightening. You know, I, I imagine some of it, uh, of the Jan 6 footage, is, is potentially picked, uh, in you know, and, and certain things are shown and certain things aren't. I mean, that's just journalism in the media. Same thing as, like, the Twitter files. You know, I would expect that in the Twitter files, like, we only see the juicy stuff, not necessarily everything that was actually going on at Twitter, right? But that's okay, because sometimes that juicy stuff alone could be all we need to be like, wait a minute, this is a little sus. Uh, and so I do think... I mean, if you probably saw my Tucker Carlson coverage yesterday, I actually went a step further. And when it came to the quote-unquote QAnon shaman, I actually picked up the uh, indictment and the allegations of fact for why the QAnon shaman was sentenced to 41 months in jail. That's actually not something from Fox or from any mainstream media. I just thought, hey, look, if he went to jail, I can pull up the Justice Department files on that. So that's what I did. And when I covered that yesterday... I actually did find something very strange that it seems like, yes, he shouldn't have been on the Capitol grounds. I said that in my video yesterday. The QAnon shaman should not have been on the Capitol grounds. I agree. But that, in my opinion, being on the Capitol grounds does not justify a 41-month sentence. Now, violent entry into the Capitol, that might. But the Justice Department's documents say, oh, the QAnon shaman was charged essentially with violent entry. But in the actual document, it shows he just walked into the building. And I'm like, that's not really consistent with what seems righteous. Right? I don't really care if you're on the left or the right. I agree with you. You shouldn't have been on the inside the Capitol building. Right? I, I feel like I can agree with most Americans on that. But to say he violently entered when in the same Justice Department complaint you're saying he didn't, seems a little odd now another thing that is also very interesting uh is, the, is this the first breach occur was near where the members of congress would be locked in Hold on. We let me let me actually back up just a little bit more because i think just two minutes of this is interesting and then we'll move back into some finance tops but anyway take a look at this 
it. If anyone was, Tarek Johnson was. Here's more of our sit-down interview with him. Mr. Johnson, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. So from the outside, here's how it looked. We now know that huge parts of the federal government were aware that there was going to be something big happening at the Capitol on January 6th. They knew there were going to be big demonstrations there. Um, and they prepared for that. But the Capitol Police, on which you served for 22 years, did not seem prepared at all. And of course, that would be the front line in preparedness. Was the Capitol Police prepared for that day? The frontline officers and uh, supervisors were not prepared for that at all. I, by the way, completely agree with that. Remember, I covered the election uh, or sort of the, the riots, rather, on Jan 6 for 10 hours that day. And I was blown away with how unprepared the Capitol Police was. When you say it all, did you, you, so you had no idea it was coming? Uh, we knew that there was going to be a demonstration that day, but we had no idea that we were going to be facing what we faced on that actual day. So things start to fall apart. People stream in the building. You call upwards in the command chain. Help me. You don't get a response. What do you do next? So around two o'clock, um, it may have been a little bit after two o'clock. I hear a officer say that the Capitol was breached. So I ran inside of the building. I ran, you know, to, to, to assist. I knew that um, that location of where the that first breach occurred was near where the members of Congress would be locked in. We initiated. A now, now, that's also really important. Now, while this is not the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt, it's worth noting that through what we're hearing from this Capitol Police officer, we know that the Capitol Police know where the congressmen and women are holed up, basically. And it's basically, in the case of Ashley Babbitt, one person with, or one or two people potentially with a firearm versus, you know, an unknown number of people with an unknown uh, weapons cache, so to speak. And now we ended up finding out that basically none of the rioters were actually armed. Some people were silly and walked into the Capitol with, like, zip ties and, and bulletproof vests, but... but at, at least from the extent of coverage we could see, nobody actually had weapons. We know that now in hindsight, right? But if you're one officer standing in front of what appears to be a mob breaking down your door uh, and, and you're tasked with protecting congressmen and women who are holed up in, in a room, a door right behind you, you know, it, it sets up a really difficult moment because it's like now do you have to potentially take somebody's life to send the signal like that is the line that you don't cross? And uh, it's, it, it, you know, obviously we, we can never know what it's like to have been in that exact mo situation because, you know, Ashley Babbitt was somebody who was in the Air Force, uh, uh, somebody who, you know, it's, it's, it's one person, uh, one woman compared to, to, to a man. And, and there are arguments on, made on both sides about, like, should, should her life have been taken? You know, I'm not going to go into to depth on that because it's really a different video topic. But I find it's very, very interesting when this particular officer says, we, like, the area that was breached was basically where everybody was hiding. And, and the level of fear there combined with the lack of preparation – is a disaster. That's probably the real issue, in my opinion, is it comes down to if, if the Capitol had properly prepared for this, maybe that severe loss of life that happened, uh, not only at the actual riot with one person being uh, basically trampled, one person being shot, uh, but then multiple people afterwards either committing suicide or having heart attacks, uh, maybe a lot of that could have been prevented. So I think the preparation was a disaster. I think that's really where the finger gets pointed. Anyway, let's keep listening. 
lockdown. So that means the chamber doors on the Senate side and the House side were locked. So that means the members of Congress would be safe inside that, those locked rooms. Yes. So I ran over to the um, House side first to make sure that those doors were locked. Then I ran over to the Senate side to make sure those doors were locked. So I asked over the radio and I say something to the effect that um, we need direction. We have hundreds of people inside of the building. What do you want us to do? We need some direction. I got I, I heard no response, no response. So. You know, um, at that particular time, how, how could nobody responded? Nobody responded. At some point, you put on a MAGA hat. Yes. Now, um, I, th I think we have it. I think we have the actual MAGA. Yes, hat. we actually do have the MAGA hat. I have it here in plastic. So here it is. Um, want to take J6, it <laughs> yes. says. Yeah, I labeled it J6. So tell us why you put the hat on and how that was related to your well, suspension. That's what got me national attention was the wearing of the MAGA hat. They were officers that we had a distress call that there were um, approximately 10 or 11 officers. I can't remember the exact number were trapped at the top of the rotunda steps. So um, I elicited the help of some CDU officers to help me go up the steps. And I kept yelling that all the way up the steps, giving people high fives, trying to make it up the steps to get to the guys. And as I was going down, there was a um, demonstrator on, I believe he was on my right side of me, so he reached over. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know if he was going to hit me, and he put the mega hat on my head. So, um, so as I was still trying to walk down the steps, then he asked for the hat back, and I said, well, I would like to keep it because I could, is, is, you know, the hats want to help me. It's your passport through the crowd. Yeah, exactly. So the Capitol Police is by definition nonpartisan. It serves both parties in the Congress. It protects members of both parties. 100%. And it has to be that way. In the wake of January 6th, you saw what looked like partisanship at the Capitol. So I'm just going to summarize the rest here out of respect for your time. Basically, this officer was not interviewed by the January 6th committee. And Tucker Carlson's like, wait a minute. Like, why is there partisanship? Why why didn't you get interviewed? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. So look, bottom line out of all of this, Jan 6 was a complete effing disaster. That officer is freaking brilliant for putting on a MAGA hat, basically, because as Tucker said, it's like his passport through the crowd to not to, to basically not potentially get killed. I mean, he doesn't know what he's up against. I mean, this hasn't happened before. There's no precedent for this like if you're a cop and your job is to protect a building and all of a sudden there are you know 500 people uh inside of your building and thousands of people outside of your building and, and windows are being broken and and you know congressmen and women are putting on evacuation hoods and hiding under desks you know it, it, it makes for a little bit of a stressful day i think we can all agree with that uh but anyway some of this i, I think it's very interesting very interesting insights. I, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen with the uh, April Dominion lawsuit, so we'll pay attention to that. Uh, we will also, as more information comes out or whatever we can learn, we'll touch on uh, J6, mostly because it's it, for me, it was such an impactful day. And uh, I, I'm, I feel very conflicted uh, because I, I personally, you know, when I covered the J6 uh, riots on the day it occurred, I felt uh, very offended, right? I, I thought this was sort of an attack on, on America, on our institutions. But then again, you know, I saw it through the coverage that I was able to see on Twitter and the mainstream media. And now seeing at least some of the perspectives of officers from the inside or footage from the inside, I, I'm kind of, I've catch myself 
feeling confused. So, uh, you know, by no means do I want anybody to think that, I, you know, I'm, I'm like a MAGA apologist here or on the other hand, you know, I'm calling this for sure like, oh, my God, it's the insurrection. You know, like I'm, I'm not trying to take a stance there, I'm trying to cover sort of in the middle here. It, it just it feels conflicting. Right. And it just it makes me feel more jaded towards both the media and the government. And, and I, I feel sad about that because I don't want to be more jaded. But anyway, uh, so let's move on. So now we're going to talk about does the recession even matter? Does the recession even matter? Now, I think this is actually a particularly interesting piece. It's a little it's on the shorter side, but we'll do some commentary on it. Stand by for the piece. All right. The mobile studio is actually working pretty well. Knock on wood. Once I say that, something's going to break. All right. Ready for this? Here we go. T.S. Lombard, does, does a recession even matter? Now we're going to cover whether or not a recession actually matters in the eyes of T.S. Lombard. And I think this is very interesting, uh, and they give some fascinating perspective. So let's take a look at this. 2020 has given investors a false sense of security about the recession impact. Now look, most of you know I'm, I'm pretty bullish right now, mostly because the conditions that we see in the market today are highly the opposite of the conditions that we saw in January of 2022, where in January of 2022, the conditions of a wage price spiral were in place. Everybody was raising prices. Pricing power was insane. Supply chain shortages were insane. Were insane. We knew the worst was ahead of us. Now, a lot of those conditions have really started their reversal path, and even though that reversal is taking substantially longer than expected, it, we, we're not facing the sort of Paul Volcker scenarios uh, that we were potentially facing in January of 2022. Uh, however, I like to read sort of the more bearish pieces, and I think it's very interesting that uh, they start off by saying, you know, 2020 gives people a false sense of security that basically in 2020, as they say, was a joke basically about how the market responded because, and I remember this during the COVID pandemic, the stock market, I mean, the entire economy basically got shut down in March. And then in April, May, everything is a disaster. Everybody's afraid of COVID. Everything's hell. And the stock market's just going straight up because the Fed's printing money like crazy. Uh, and I remember the, the, the memes of the child on the swing, uh, smiling and laughing, being labeled the stock market. And in the background, the whole town is on fire, uh, being labeled the economy, right? And that disconnect, those memes I'll never forget of 2020. And so they bring up basically this, this joke. They don't say it's a funny joke, but basically a joke about how the stock market is not the economy. Because back then, we really had this element of Tina. There, there is no alternative to investing in the stock market. And so what they argue here was that the big thing about the fake 2020 recession is that if you if your only real experience of a recession, uh, like this, this is if you're maybe like in your early 20s or before, like if you, you, you weren't essentially of adult age in the 2008, 9, 10 sort of depths of the recession or potentially even 7, 6, they make the argument here that the 2020 might, a recession might be people's only actual experience of a recession. And that was really a fake recession because the government knew they were shutting down economies and they preemptively printed so much money to backstop financial markets. We basically didn't actually have a real recession. Yes, GDP went negative, but we didn't actually allow real damage to occur from the lingering of a recession. Now, what I think is interesting here is it somewhat relates to me what uh, what some of what Elizabeth Warren said yesterday. Now, we, we know that Elizabeth Warren is, is pretty far 
relatively, dare I say, extreme on the left. Uh, as somebody who who enjoys financial and political coverage in the middle, I, I see Elizabeth Warren as, as quite left. Not not just left, quite left. Uh, but anyway, she, she made this argument that, hey, look, once you start seeing layoffs in the economy, you're going to create this, quote, runaway train of more damage occurring. How are you going to prevent that continued damage? And she actually has a really good point that we don't know what is going to happen in terms of how long the damage of the recession could actually last. You know, the Fed could U-turn when inflation is under control, but then you look at the pieces of the economy and you go, well, what did you just do to the economy? What if now we go into a real and deep recession? Now, we, we, we don't know. We don't know. We haven't had these sort of experiences before. So we, we, don't, we don't have a very clear precedent of, of war and pandemic and a pandemic that was responded to with the money printing that we've seen, right? We've had wars. And we've had pandemics separately, but not both together, uh, combined with these modern supply chain issues. We, we haven't been in these situations before. But anyway, the stock, markets, uh, the stock market performed during an artificial environment during 2020 and 2022 is not necessarily a helpful guide. Recessions, they say, are a process, not just a period of two consecutive quarters of falling GDP. In fairness, in 2021, uh, sorry, last year, in 2022, we had two quarters of negative GDP. But we did not have the recessionary process. Now, that actually led to a lot of complaining that Joe Biden was trying to rejigger the definition of a recession. Like, hey, a recession isn't actually just two quarters of negative GDP. And everybody's like, of course, you're saying that you're the White House. But to some extent, the White House isn't necessarily wrong. Like, we didn't really have the quote unquote process of a recession in 2022, even though we did have two quarters of negative GDP. It didn't really feel like we were in a recession. Unless the only thing you cared about is the stock market, but the stock market, as we know, is not the economy. But anyway, recessions are a process, it says here, not just two quarters of falling GDP. And they center on deployments in the labor market, particularly in the United States. When U.S. companies start to fire people, it sets off a highly unstable and reflexive process because falling employment in turn kills consumer confidence, reduces spending, and feeds back into a decline in corporate revenues, which could lead to further job losses. Now, I find it very interesting, but this is literally what Elizabeth Warren was talking about. And I can't believe I somewhat find myself finding basically an institutional piece of evidence that reiterates what Elizabeth Warren says, because I generally don't like to amplify what people on the extreme say, but she's right. She's not wrong. We don't know what happens when employment, unemployment starts to rise. And then we get that potential runaway train. And here T.S. Lombard is telling us like, yeah, like the 2020 recession didn't matter. But this recession we're about to go through, you know, this could actually be a really big problem. Falling unemployment in turn kills consumer confidence. I mean, think about it. You lose your job. All of a sudden you're like, oh, damn, I, I'm not going on vacation this year. Now, in fairness to myself. OK, well, I'm not trying to sound conceited here, but I've been pounding the table since like March of 2022 uh, and January of 2022 around that region. The reason I say March is because I did an interview with uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Reisinger. I love the guy. I got to go visit him in Texas. And I remember going on his podcast and I said, if you're a contractor right now, just get ready. I don't know when, but probably over the next one to two years, you're going to be in a recessionary environment and you want to get ready. Start saving more money now, right? And I'm trying to provide that warning, like get ready. 
Uh, now, I'm glad I did because, you know, the building permits are starting to fall. We're starting to, to recognize that there could be lagging effects that affect the construction market. In fact, I thought it was very fascinating. There's this researcher who put together a phenomenal piece this morning on uh, on on the lags of construction data and how that potentially affects real estate. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pull that up right here because it's uh, and I'll give you some bottom lines on it too. I'm not going to go through the whole thing on it, but uh, let's see if I could find the darn thing here. Re here it is. EPB research. Okay, and, and I'm going to bottom line this because it's it's a little bit long winded, and that's no offense to him. He's providing data, but we're going to just keep it simple for the sake of YouTube here. Although usually I go into more detail on YouTube. This one is not as necessary. I could sum it up faster. So basically, he talks about construction being a major driver of recessions, and essentially what he's saying is construction is really broad. It's really residential construction that leads recessions, and the really fascinating part here is he talks about how building permits are one of the most reliable indicators of construction, because obviously you need a building permit before you can build. And, and he talks about right here, building permits, blue line, recession, gray bars. Okay. So what do you have? Before the recession of uh, the early 70s, what do you have? A massive drop-off in permits. What do you have before the late 70s recession? Massive drop-off in permits. What do you have before the 82 Paul Volcker era? Massive drop in permits. What do you have before the late 80s recession, 89 recession? Drop in permits. Not, not very soon, before or not very early it's not like a super leading indicator of recession but what do you have over here before the uh housing recession obviously massive drop in permits and look at what you have now massive drop in building permits and i thought it was a really fascinating piece because he's really saying hey like hello uh the leading indicators are screaming that we're basically barreling towards a recession he says when you see a big decline in building permits you know some number of months later, the number of units under construction will decline. And this is sort of aligning with sort of my idea that like if you're a contractor, like get ready. And I've been saying that for like a year now, but I mean it. <laughs> when the number of units under construction starts falling, construction employment falls almost instantly. Remember, construction employment has residential and non-residential components. Residential labor tends to react more uh, clearly with the actual economy because you could have, you know, institutional, uh, well, I should say like government, for example, construction like roads or highways or whatever. Those tend, well, I shouldn't say tend, but maybe more recession agnostic. Uh, and, and they're not as, as um, you don't turn those projects as quickly as you do a house, right? You could build a house in, in you know, three months. You know, building a highway could take you three years. So that's why you get more responsiveness for residential construction. But anyway, basically, he talks about how going back to the 70s, there have only been a certain number of times where building permits declined 20%. Uh, and, and pretty much at all of those times, we've seen a recession. And we've ha we have basically that showing up again. And then he talks about how there's about a six-month lag between when permits fall and when construction jobs start falling. Now, I think that's that's a fascinating warning because he's basically giving us a leading indicator that, like, hey, like this could actually reiterate what Janet Yellen is saying here. And maybe we should be careful on how much we tighten because if we do get this runaway train, there are a lot of actual lagging indicators that suggest we're running into problems. Look, uh, Minecraft Steve uh, is here, as Jack described to you yesterday, uh, saying lumber prices probably are in an early indicator as well. Uh, Steve here says construction is the number two GDP driver in Canada after real estate. Oh, look at that. Steve, what part of Canada are you in? I'm going to come visit you, and then we could talk about uh, garages, eh?
Okay, sorry, bad Canadian jokes. Uh, we'll trade loonies and toonies instead. Okay, so investors can be sure. Remember, my family is half Canadian, so I, I, I feel like I, I, we, we get to make those jokes and then have beer. We'll go to LCBO if you're in the Ontario area, uh, just as long as it's in accordance with their hours because they have weird operating hours. Anyway, investors can't be sure how deep the recession will be, when it will end, or whether there will be a strong and full recovery but we can agree that a recession should be in the mind of investors, right? And we want to be aware because, uh, you know, right now the assumption is that the recession is going to be mild. But a big red flag that you want to pay attention to is every recession is assumed to be mild. Now, I think that that was actually really interesting. What's up, Max? I'll come visit you in Toronto. That's only like 30, 40 minutes from Barry, depending on traffic. Anyway, uh, this I thought was really interesting because – yeah, everybody right now is like, okay, if we have a recession, it's going to be mild. Well, dude, I remember 2006, and you know what realtors said in 2006? They're like, ah, we're just going to have a leveling off of home prices. It's just going to be leveled off. It's just going to be mild. Dude, it was not mild. It was hell. It was hell. Some condos in many markets fell as much as 55%. It was insane. If true recessionary dynamics kick in, at which point people start to feel uncomfortable with the mild recession thesis. There will be a particular point of danger for risk assets, and will be particularly dangerous if the response from policymakers is less preemptive than everyone has been assuming. In other words, well, inflation is still up. We effed, and we're just going to have to keep hiking. So in other words, every recession is supposed to be mild until it isn't. <laughs> this is like... Uh, quite frankly, like chilling this this piece right here, especially when you combine it with with you know leading indicators, Elizabeth Warren and Jerome Powell and and, and this piece here, it's it's this is bearish. I don't like this, right? Even if it lasts only a matter of weeks, the combination of rapidly deteriorating economic data and residual monetary hawkishness could substantially destabilize global markets. Investors are focusing on the softness of the soft landing, but even a soft landing could be disturbingly bumpy. Corporate earnings could uh, – okay, so then we get into one final thing about a normal recession is we don't know what sort of economy will emerge on the other side. Often the whole trajectory of nominal GDP turns lower, which means corporate earnings are permanently uh, reduced compared to what investors expected before the downturn. more subtle point is that sectors that performed well during the previous expansion might not be the growth leaders of the new cycle. Take famously the mid-2001 recession. Manufacturing in the developed world never fully recovered, with many of these industries migrating to China and developing economies out of the U.S. U.S. tech companies suffered years of structural derating, with Europe and emerging markets experiencing the best period of outperformance in decades. It is possible we could see another big rotation after the next recession, particularly if underlying inflation pressures were to linger and there was no return to quantitative easing and the uh, this is basically near zero interest rate policies of the 2010s, which had previously given stocks distinct advantages. So we can tell ourselves the next recession doesn't matter, but it is like and that it is likely to be mild, especially if we manage our own jobs. But that view could well be tested at some point this year. Ooh, that is this is a pretty damning piece on the recession, and uh, and and you know how does this affect my likelihood of flip flopping? Well, 
uh, right now it doesn't. <laughs> I'm going to be, as the Fed says, data dependent. I think our trajectory is substantially different than that, again, of where we were in January of 2022. Uh, however, this is a very good point. And this is something that I'm going to put on my bear belt. So I like to say I have a bear belt. And so that way, if I need to reach down to my tool belt and go, I got a gun. I mean, I got a, I got bear information. I can go down and go, oh, this is starting to align. And so every so often, I kind of like to look and go, hmm, okay, the bear's argument. You know, they have a point here, here, and here. This is a really good point. I think this is a fantastic bear argument is that we don't know how dirty this recession could be. We have no idea. Uh, and so we just have to see, hey, how, how, how's, our, how's our progress growing? And uh, what is the likelihood that the amount of wealth and excess savings that has been built up uh, will actually sustain us through the recession? Now, somebody left a comment yesterday, which I thought was actually a very fair comment. They're like, Kevin, can you clarify why everybody keeps saying that you know the savings rate is down and uh, a credit spending, like consumer debt is up, but somehow people have excess savings? And this is actually a very weird phenomenon. So let's say you have $20,000 of excess savings, but you're saving zero right now. Your savings rate is zero. So that can be explained away. We can explain away that you have more money while the savings rate is lower than usual. That's fair. But then why is debt going up? Well, it's financially stupid, but a lot of people do this. They will actually look at money in their bank account and say, yeah, I'm going to keep that. That's my, that's my safety net. Now I'm going to go spend on my credit card and borrow more money. It's it's generally terrible of a terrible financial decision to pay interest on a credit card while you have money to pay it off. But people do it. I don't know why. I don't think it's a good idea, but it does happen. So, uh, you know, the, the conditions are definitely present for uh, for some bearishness. Uh, but uh, we'll see how the leading data comes out uh, over the next uh, over the next period of time here. OK, OK, what's next? All right, so let's see here. Ooh, we got to talk Elon next. Okay, all right, here we go. Uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Let me quickly just take a quick here. Qualcomm increases quarterly cash dividend by 7%. Mm, German retail sales volume down 7% year over year. Okay, trade balance isn't a big deal. That's fine. Labor market has been unbelievably resilient. Yes. Uh, and and that's that's actually potentially the counter to this particular argument is if if we can get rid of inflation without crushing the labor market, that's that's the way you win. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay. All right. We need to talk about Tesla. Okay. Here we go. Now we get to talk about Tesla, Elon Musk, what ARK Invest thinks, some flip-flopping from uh, Elon Musk, what's going on with the FTC. We got to set some things straight. So first things first, Tesla is apparently now being investigated because apparently in some cases steering wheels are falling off, according to the Associated Press. This is like music to the ears of all the Elon Musk and Tesla haters. I've never heard of this before, but then again, my anecdote doesn't really matter. But it is something that is making news this morning, as well as a U.S. Uh, uh, in investigation uh, investigation 
probe, I guess I should say, into Model Ys. Look, you're almost always going to have these sort of investigations, uh, this whole recall about loose bolts on 3,000 models, tiny percentage, obviously, of, of the Tesla fleet of about 4 million vehicles. So we're not trying to explain it away. Obviously, quality control is something that Tesla's obviously been having to deal with regularly. We could say it's growing pains for Tesla. Hopefully, newer models don't continue to have these issues. They're going to have to be things we pay attention to, but we don't want to spend too much time just talking about recalls because they are what they are. When you have physical recalls, guess what? So does every other auto manufacturer, except the reality is 99%, well, it's like 98.9% of, uh, according to Forbes, of all Tesla recalls are solved via an over-the-air update, which rivals like the next best company for recalls that are being done over the air at like 30%. So Tesla's miles ahead here. But uh, let's talk about uh, the FTC, Elon's flip-flop on Twitter, and then also what ARK Invest has to say. Uh, I'm uh, going to pop open ARK Invest piece right here on Tesla Investor Day. And Atasha is ARK Invest's EV analyst. And uh, she provides, you know, sort of a reiteration of some of the things that we've already known. I just want to give a sort of a brief summary of what ARK's position here is. They don't give us any kind of financial projections or changes to their models. They still have this $1,500 price target for Tesla. But it's worth looking at some of their commentary here. So they write, despite mixed reviews of Tesla's Investor Day, Tasha uh, found no shortage, and Sam, found no shortages of important and exciting news. We believe Tesla shared more profound news than a product prototype, the roadmap for continuous cost declines associated with scaling production. Now, this is fair. They did exactly that. This was really a how we're going to get our cost reductions presentation, right? Very fair. Very fair argument. First, it will produce 100% of its controllers of the next-gen vehicle. Second, it will switch to a 48-volt uh, uh, battery architecture that should reduce power loss by 16-fold. That's basically the heat transmission through cabling inside the cars. When you go to higher voltages away from 12-volt, you, you, you basically have less heat loss on wiring. Okay, this is actually why Europe uses the 240-volt system as opposed to 120. Got it. Third, it will use local Ethernet connectors uh, to reduce complexity in wire harnesses. Maybe that's what the Optimus is essentially in the future going to plug in, unplug, whatever. Then you've got electrical architecture changes, the parallel assembly process. We've talked about that before, reducing wasted time, manufacturing footprints. Uh, then uh, they talk about, and this was interesting. This is sort of the newer information that I got from ARC here. What I enjoy here is they talk about how Waymo and uh, Chevy Cruise really have each attained 1 million miles cumulatively with no one behind the wheel on public roads and that sounds like a lot right one million miles uh driven on roads but take a listen to this tesla's fleet currently drives more than 120 miles per day well that's all vehicles okay that doesn't matter so much but in total we have 100 million miles in full self-driving with its most advanced driver assistance. Now, it's unclear if they mean 100 million in total for FSD or if they mean 100 million of that 120 per day. I'm going to say 100 million in total because, quite frankly, I think a lot of people who drive Teslas don't actually use the FSD, mostly because it's kind of annoying because if you pick up your phone, it just yells at you and it's just like better to just have it off. However, I do have FSD and I will say if I, you know, if you're actually like capable of paying attention to the car, it's phenomenal to just have it running on FSD. Either way, 
if Waymo and and Cruise each at the moment, according to Arc, have a million miles driven on on essentially full self driving, and Tesla's at a hundred million. I mean, we they're basically yeah. Here it is. Tesla vehicles have traveled one hundred x the cumulative miles and have collected fifty thousand times the data. According to our research, data will be critical in the race to create scale in a fully autonomous taxi service. In short, Tesla's vertical integration seems to have given the company an edge that may take its less integrated competitors years, if ever, to replicate. Now, uh, Elon Musk yesterday in his presentation with Morgan Stanley talked about how Basically, Tesla investors are potentially misunderstanding the total addressable market for Tesla, that it's not just cars, it's software. It's basically providing hardware with software-style margins. Now, we don't want to be redundant, but but basically, Tesla could basically give away vehicles in the future and still have somewhere around a 25 to 30% margin on their hardware solely because of software margins that are close to basically approaching a limit of 100%, which is pretty remarkable. Now, there is also some other drama regarding Elon Musk and Twitter, specifically uh, the, regarding FTC, federal, uh, or, uh, sorry, F- FCC? It, might, it was one of them. It's either the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Trade Commission, w- one of them. Uh, but anyway, there are these required depositions and audits. I believe it's the FCC, so I'm going to go with that. By the FCC of Twitter, because uh, Twitter is under a consent decree. That has been in effect since 2011. It was actually expanded in 2022. The decree basically requires regular audits of Twitter to make sure that people's privacy are are, are being respected, whether that's their, their age, their email, their location data, whatever. Well, the FCC uh, requests, apparently the FCC has peppered Twitter with about 350 requests, and uh, Elon is, is kind of freaking out on Twitter over them. But apparently this is pretty normal. It's the normal course of business for for a company uh, like Twitter to be dealing with these sort of requests from uh, the FCC. But Elon Musk isn't very happy, so he's kind of lashing out a little bit on Twitter. I'll show some of these tweets here. But it seems like a lot of these lash, uh, these these uh, requirements are, are just a normal part of the business that he bought. So it's, it, it's potentially difficult to say that this is just some sort of unique incursion against Elon, and rather it, it, it's probably more of just like, that's just the course of doing business for Twitter. So I don't actually think it's really that big of a deal, but Elon Musk seems to be freaking out about that. In addition to, uh, he did flip-flop on the guy that uh, he was um, publicly bashing yesterday. Yesterday, he was publicly suggesting that the individual, an individual who was fired at Twitter was quote-unquote the worst. He literally said, he's the worst. And uh, basically pointed out publicly that this individual claims he has a disability and can't work yet can tweet all he wants. Apparently, Elon ended up getting on the phone with the person rather than listening to rumors, ended up talking to the person, realizing that the person's actually not uh, as unproductive as Elon Musk made it seem uh, publicly. Now, the dude has gotten an insane amount of attention online because of this. Uh, uh, I mean, massive amount of attention. And, and so his, his Twitter following has like exploded. Uh, now, that's not to minimize the fact that, you know, his, his disability was made public, although I think he's personally been public about it before. But anyway, take a look at this. 
This is kind of the stuff you're seeing circulate online right now. The Biden administration's casual violation of the First Amendment should shock every journalist. What's the limiting principle? And then you have these tweets like perfectly normal for federal investigative body to demand the names, the names of reporters interacting with a company. And basically they're making this this claim here. Yeah, oh, it's the Trade Commission. Oh, it's the FTC. Oh, interesting. So anyway, the FTC uh, also asked the company to identify all journalists granted access to the company's records. Uh, and for more information regarding Twitter Blue subscription services, the FTC has demanded Twitter turn over internal communications related to Elon Musk and detailed information about layoffs and other business decisions. The FTC is also seeking to depose Musk in connection with the probe. Uh, I mean, really, what, 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 you know, Elon Musk complains this is a serious attack on the Constitution by a federal agency. Uh, it, it really, what's interesting to me is it, it does seem like the FTC could potentially be picking on Elon Musk. But then again, these decrees that allow these federal agencies to basically pick apart Twitter existed prior to Elon Musk's ownership. So I'm not sure if this is Elon Musk just kind of being frustrated with basically what he signed up for. And we know that Elon has a tendency of kind of getting frustrated online and then lashing out. Or or, or if this is like some kind of politically charged uh, and, and motivated tool at, at harassing Elon Musk. Who knows? Uh, but it's something that obviously we'll, we'll be paying attention to uh, over the next uh, years uh, as uh, as Elon continues to progress with sort of his uh, his, his t Twitter uh, acquisition here. Now, personally, uh, I don't care so much about the FTC probing Twitter. I mean, you're getting the same thing from Europe. Uh, and it's it's just the nature of being a social media platform. And quite frankly, I think everything should just be relatively transparent. As the Twitter files showed, more transparency is better. So, uh, you know, personally, somewhat a nothing burger in my opinion. That, uh, But a lot of people are making a big deal about this. That, oh my gosh, Twitter is going to get deposed. Uh, you know, politicians hate Elon. To some degree, that might be true. But I think it's a little bit of a nothing burger. It's going to be a headache for Elon nonetheless, but we'll see. Good to see, though, Elon potentially, you know, actually talk directly with this uh, Halley, the person uh, that, that he sort of outed on Twitter. And uh, when it comes to uh, Tesla drama in the near term regarding recalls, not that big of a deal, in my opinion. I more side with what ARK suggests and, and what Elon suggests yesterday, that if you're a Tesla investor, you really want to focus on the long-term uh, autonomous benefits that uh, electric vehicles, well, specifically Teslas, create. Now, uh, do keep in mind, I I personally have a rule that the day uh, someone in my family loves Tesla is the day that I have to sell it. So I purposefully took them uh, in my car the other day, and I turned on Tesla full self-driving in an area where I thought the car would be facing some challenges. And so it was dusk. Uh, it was, uh, you know, basically turning nighttime. And we're, at, we're coming up on a stop sign, one lane road in each direction on a bridge. And we have to turn left. There's a yield in front of us, stop sign to our right, and we have to turn left. And uh, I, I, I had a suspicion this would be a challenging intersection at, it, at uh, that time of day. It's handled it perfectly fine before, but that person was in the passenger seat. And they're, they're not a big fan of Elon. So I turn on full self-driving. As we get to that stop sign, the car stops, uh, sort of creeps forward, waits for its turn. It has a little thing that pops up that says waiting for my turn. And uh, and then it goes. Unfortunately, when it goes, it, it nearly drives us right into the curb uh, because it took too much of a turn. It went at the appropriate time. 
But I had to take over to pre prevent hitting the curb. I don't, I don't know if it would have stopped. I don't know because I didn't want to take that chance. But I, but what was more important was that I, obviously as, as someone who drives FSD, I know it's 90% good, but there's still those 5 to 10% edge scenarios where it's like, yeah, it does stupid things. Like you have to pay attention, right? Like when I'm on a one-lane road going against oncoming traffic, I hold the wheel because I'm like, I don't know if this thing's going to try to kill me and yeet over. It's never done that before, but I, I still like that's the kind of caution that I think beta testers should uh, should exhibit when they're driving FSC. But anyway, when it nearly ran into the curb, the individual says, yep, see, nope, nowhere near close. I would never trust this system with my life. A lot of work to do. Tesla sucks. This is why I would never invest in Tesla and I'm sticking with Toyota. Uh, and, and to me, I actually smiled because I'm like, this is the point of being at the cutting edge of technology is that it's it's not perfect yet, right? Being 90% there is actually such an achievement. But the world does not realize how far Tesla has already come ahead of the competition. And again, my rule of thumb is not to convince that person to love Tesla. It's because when that person finally realizes that Tesla is, is so phenomenal and why would you ever drive any other vehicle than a Tesla? That's going to be peak euphoria for Tesla. And that's going to be my exit for Tesla is when that person becomes a Tesla fanboy, I know we've reached the top, <laughs> but we are clearly nowhere near there. So I report this story uh, honored to say we are nowhere near the top. <laughs> Uh, so so anyway, I, I, that makes me very, very happy. <laughs> uh, hopefully it makes you happy as well. Uh, in other news, Volkswagen is uh, putting on hold the expansion of their Eastern battery plant in Europe, Eastern European battery plant, because they're waiting to potentially and now likely receiving 10 billion euros of incentives from the United States government to instead build that battery plant in America. The EV incentive war is real. And I'm ending this sort of EV discussion here by saying, if you want, if you like the stimulus check uh, era of 2020, you are going to love the stimulus checks that are being distributed to electric vehicle manufacturers, battery manufacturers, and chip companies. Because the more the United States does it, the more Europe does it. Europe now losing a Volkswagen factory to the United States. Dude, they are going to turn the money printers on to get Volkswagen to also build a new battery factory in Europe. And the more we get that kind of stuff, the more stimmy checks are going to electric vehicle companies to propel the, the goal of green energy, right? But it's not just Europe and the United States fighting. It's also China. China is also massively incentivizing the EV sector. So I think it's very fascinating. And of course, as if on cue, I was literally thinking it. I should have said something because I knew it was going to happen. But as if on cue, here comes Steve, commodity Steve, battery plant going to need metal. <laughs> I was thinking it before he said it. I'm like, I know this is going to wake Steve up. He's going to put his coffee down and go, oh, you're not wrong, Steve. <laughs> Copper will be the big winger, winner, and you don't think battery metals are going to stay elevated with all these intensives. All right, Steve. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. You're, you're, not, you're not wrong. Uh, you know, we, it's going to take a massive increase in supply just to keep uh, metals even stable. So you're right about that. See, see my argument is that we're, we're, we'll have a massive increase in supply of these. But you're right. A massive increase in supply with a massive increase in demand could just create stability for electric vehicle style commodities, right? Whether that's lithium or, or nickel or cobalt or copper or whatever. You're not wrong about that. 
uh, you know, the generally the idea is, oh, more supply, the prices would come down. But then again, if demand is also exponentially rising, maybe we just sort of stair step up and those prices stay elevated. Okay. All right. All right. But anyway, the incentive, <laughs> Steve is an OG. I love Steve. I actually, I, I, when I hire people, I tell them, I do not need another Kevin. I don't need people telling me stuff that I already think because then you just create more confirmation bias. I like people around. Like my favorite people to hang out with are people who have different opinions like Steve. Uh, mostly because I, I, I actually today I'm going to Puerto Rico. I fly to Puerto Rico in like two hours uh, because uh, tentatively I'm going to go visit Peter Schiff. I'm going to meet him in person and then go, yo, Peter. We're different. Now talk. <laughs> that should be very entertaining. So so we'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's my take on uh, Tesla and EVs and that. Okay, uh, I think I've got maybe like six, seven minutes here for, for another topic here. So let's, let's cover one more thing because it's fascinating. Uh, and then we'll move on. So that new topic is going to be the Nord Stream Pipeline. Now, I'm going to try to keep this as streamlined as possible because I know everybody's like, can I just only talk about finance in the market? But come on, we got to snazz it up a little bit. I mean, I don't know how 10-year treasury yields are down 5 bips today. 3.92, that's insane. Stock market's basically flat. What's Tesla doing? Tesla's like, I don't know, down probably? Oh, yeah, down 1.5%. It's at 185. Uh, and oil, oil's also down, though, so I like seeing that. All right, anywho. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. All right, here we go. Now, we've heard a lot about the Nord Stream Pipeline, but in this segment, I'm going to tell you about something crazy because I got a lot of family in Germany, and something that I just read kind of blows my mind a little bit about what Germans think about Russia and Ukraine. But not only are we going to talk about that, of course, we're going to talk about the Nord Stream Pipeline. So there, there are basically multiple allegations at this point, right? The United States government wants to make the argument that, and I'm going to summarize this to try to speed you up in case you don't know all of the background. I'm going to speed you up as fast as possible. Okay, you ready for this? U.S. government says Russia bombed their own pipeline because basically the argument is, well, Russia knew we were never going to use their Russian natural gas anymore uh, because it's a pipeline that goes, well, two pipelines that go from Russia to Germany, and we weren't going to use their natural gas anyway. So why not blow up the pipeline to basically punish Europe is the sort of the, the conventional argument, and Russia basically committed sabotage against their own pipeline is the theory. And of course, the county theory is why would they do that? They could literally just turn off the tap. They don't have to destroy infrastructure they spent three to five billion dollars on on manufacturing okay that's that's one argument now of course we have the idea that why would joe biden say at a press conference when asked hey how are you going to stop the production of the Nord stream 2 pipeline why would you say essentially and i'm paraphrasing here a little bit but you could see this video all over the internet we will make sure there is an end to the Nord Stream pipeline, right? That's his response, sort of implying that, look, if we need to take it out ourselves, we will. And so the mainstream argument is that Russia bombed the pipeline. Now, unfortunately, though, the mainstream narrative is falling apart for the people who believe the mainstream narrative with even companies like the Washington Post. So the Washington Post leans left. It's, in my opinion, very important to understand media bias because it gives us insight into which way they lean so we know where, where their biases are and then we know, okay, like when they say something that's potentially anti that bias, maybe there's more credibility to it. Maybe. You know, potentially you could have that argument. So the Washington Post tends to lean pretty far left 
And if the mainstream argument is, oh, Russia bombed it, the Washington Post has actually done multiple pieces now arguing there is zero evidence that Russia bombed its own pipeline. So then on the other extreme, you have this argument that it was actually, and this was a, a reporter uh, who's, who's broken stories on the Vietnam War. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. This person has an incredible history. But anyway, there's this reporter who wrote down, here's how the United States could have basically bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. And the argument is, the CIA would have worked with mil uh, the military, like the Navy and the Navy of, of Norway or other countries, and basically the CIA probably placed plastic explosive with uh, Navy divers on the pipelines because you had uh, combined three explosions in three different locations, placed plastic explosive encased in concrete. The reason you encase it in concrete is, A, so the explosion can actually occur, B, so the explosion is directed into the pipeline rather than out into the water, right? I mean, the concrete's going to break anyway, but it directs more of the energy into the pipeline. So you put plastic, so if this is the pipeline, you stick plastic explosive on the side, which is encased in concrete, the explosion goes in, ruptures the pipeline, boom, methane goes everywhere, right? Now, the gas lines were not being used at the time. Nonetheless, you still have potentially between 100,000 to 500,000 metric tons of methane that likely leaked, according to the Danish government. That's probably about five times more than the largest uh, methane leak we've ever seen in 2016, the Aliso Canyon uh, uh, pipeline leak in or facility leak in California. And so the equivalent of that basically is like burning 5 billion gallons of gas is what some uh, people say. Although others say, nah, this is actually more like a leak of methane that would be the equivalent of two to maybe five days of actually just regular transportation in the world from planes, cars, boats, trucks, whatever. So like, yes, it was a big methane leak. Was it really that big of a deal? Yes, for one moment, it was very historic. But in the grand scheme of things, does it really change much for climate change? Probably not. So so some people kind of water that down. Although, yes, it was a very, very large explosion uh, of uh, or, or release of methane condensed into one point. Again, the impacts of that uncertain. But anyway, going back to the CIA allegation, because you've got the mainstream argument, then you got the CIA allegation. The CIA allegation is that these bombs were attached to the pipeline. Not only are the bombs attached to the pipeline, but they're not on timers. They're actually activated by potentially dropping a buoy like a water floating object uh, on the surface of the water. So a plane can fly by whenever you want it to happen. Plane flies by, drops a buoy. The buoy then releases sonar signals, but not just any kind of sonar signal because whales send sonar signals, uh, you know, whatever. So instead... It would sing basically a sonar tune as kind of like an eerie violin on the Titanic. And as soon as that sequence of sonar ends, it triggers the C4 to explode, blowing up the three pipelines without making it actually seem like there were any divers or boats in the area. Well, now, so, so that's another thesis. So you have one thesis, which is Russia did it. The other thesis is, no, the United States did it. Now, the new sort of revised mainstream argument is that, oh, well, it's actually uh, a pro-Ukrainian group that ended up uh, blowing up this pipeline. This pro-Ukrainian group somehow basically dove into the depths, which are only about 80 yards deep at the site of the explosion, using potentially submersible drones or divers or surface ships or whatever, uh, were, were the people who bombed this. Now, pro-Ukrainian groups which Zelensky says he has no idea about, could really be anyone, right? It could literally be a splinter cell of the CIA. Not to bring back memories of the game Splinter Cell, best game ever, okay? Splinter Cell, Pandora, tomorrow, and Chaos Theory, do not hold a candle. 
to anything else. In other words, nothing else holds a candle to that. Anyway, you know what I mean. So, so anyway, so now there's this new argument that, oh, no, no, no. It was actually just pro-Ukrainian saboteurs. It, it wasn't even a government. Yeah, okay, come on, man. This is like bullcrap, but, but whatever. But what's actually really interesting out of all of this is that apparently German authorities uh, and uh, the German media is now suggesting that a small team of saboteurs actually had a rented yacht from Poland who is owned by two Ukrainians who were apparently able to use that yacht to, to go dive down and plant these plastic explosives or whatever. Uh, now, whether that was, those were CIA you know, uh, individuals or whatever, who knows? The point is, the damn thing blew up. Okay, got it. Somebody did it. It was probably funded by the EU and the United States, but we'll never probably know that with certainty. But the point here is that Germans are actually finding that the danger of potentially seeing that uh, a pro-Ukrainian group blew this pipeline up could potentially weaken NATO support for Ukraine, which is already starting to weaken in Germany, because in a weird way, you're seeing a lot of Germans who are actually somewhat sympathetic, and this sounds crazy, sympathetic to Russia. And the reason, and I'm like, I'm mind blown because I got family in Germany, and I'm like, what? Like, a lot of people in Germany apparently don't like Zelensky. And I'm like, I feel like I'm whispering saying that because I'm like, that's weird. But, but, but that's apparently the mainstream media in Germany is like, people don't like Zelensky. And the idea is that, uh, the, uh, con continuously funding this NATO expansion is exactly what we should not be doing. Now, at the same time as this NATO expansion is happening, you know, the United States is like, no, 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 we're not going to send F-16s to Europe. But what are we seeing? Well, you've got people on the House Armed Services Committee saying the only reason we're not sending F-16s yet is because it's probably going to take us a year to send parts planes and trained pilots to send F-16s to Ukraine to help them potentially go attack Russia. Well, that's potentially where you get more of a World War III approach, right? Now, there's a lot of drama about Bakhmut, obviously, because this is where the Ukrainians are like, oh, no, we're losing. And the U.S. is like, no, it doesn't matter if you're losing. And then you've got the Wagner group, which is a, a, a hodgepodge of like convicts and criminals who are basically mercenaries who are freed from jail to work for Russia, who are acting like they're being abandoned by Russia. And so everybody's kind of using the propaganda of Bakhmut to get more funding for their side, the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. The point is, everything is a complete disaster. The biggest takeaway from all of this, in my opinion, Nord Stream pipelines, the Germans, the Ukrainians, the Russians, the pilot fighter pilots going there, the biggest takeaway out of all of this is there is no obvious end game. And probably it's going to take quite a while for basically po politicians to realize that their constituents, Americans, Germans, Russians, Ukrainians, whatever, are tired of the war. And only then can we have a negotiated settlement. But right now, this is a war of attrition. Russia has more soldiers. They're willing to use those soldiers. The, the West continues to provide more and more weaponry. There's no obvious end game here. And the more of this drama that happens and the more pain we see in areas like Bakhmut or otherwise... The longer this is going to go on, and unfortunately, it's terrible. So that's the latest on Ukraine. Hopefully, that is useful to you. I am now going to the course member live stream. Goodbye, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much for watching. As always, please subscribe, share the videos. Bye.